Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tates Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. Our New Testament reading this morning is Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 43. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. The word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask on this day, uh, with so much uncertainty and fear and anxiety, sickness, death, all around us, Lord, I ask that the true news of your resurrection would invade our homes and our hearts. Lord, that we trust your spirit who knows no boundaries and is omnipresent and is able to do what we cannot do. That the spirit will use not just this word, but this technology to literally change lives this day. Lord, I pray for just a special measure of... Um, strength and ability here as I am so used to uh, preaching to people and not to a camera lens. And um, Lord, I pray that I just would be freed up to preach as unto an audience of one, which is how you call us to preach every time. And so I pray you're pleased and I pray your people are blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. A month ago which seems like ages ago, when, um, when we made the decision to transition to online worship, I, uh, probably along with every preacher in America, had the immediate thought, well, surely not Easter. Surely by Easter this will pass, or who knows, perhaps Easter would be the first Sunday back. That's how I would write the story. Uh, wouldn't it be great 
if this day we were reconvening for the first time to be back together in a sanctuary decorated with flowers, wearing our Easter outfits, having our souls stirred by choir and organ and trumpet and timpani, and the message, how I would love to preach that Easter message because it preaches itself. And yet here we are. Or to say it more precisely, here we are not. Can I just ask the obvious question? What is going on? What is going on? This is so surreal. Never in my wildest dreams could I imagine an Easter like this. And that's saying something because I've had some wild dreams. Every preacher knows the notorious, um, anxious, preaching nightmare dream. I have, uh, I have them regularly, three in particular. One is I'm on the platform, it's time to go preach, and I suddenly realize, uh-oh, I didn't write a sermon. And so I'm walking up to the pulpit uh, trying to make something up that I'm going to say to you in just a few minutes. The other one I have is I'm in my office, and it's time for the service to start, but I can't get the cursed TCPC printer to work. And so I can't print out my notes. And so in my mind, I'm trying to memorize uh, the sermon so that I can actually preach it. That dream eventually will come true because the TCPC office printer is possessed by the devil. My least favorite is when I'm in my office. It's time for the service to start. And you guessed it, I forgot to get dressed before coming to church. I am praying for everyone's sake. That one never comes true. I've dreamed some wild scenarios, but never, ever could I imagine this one. Quarantine alone in our homes, me in an empty building, preaching to a camera, in the narthex of all places, not the sanctuary because my voice would be lost in the echo of that big empty room designed to be filled with people. To be filled with people, not the reverberation of a lone pastor's voice preaching into the void. I just can't make this real, and yet it's real. We are in the midst of a historical tragedy unlike anything our world has ever known. Yes, there have been disasters. Yes, there have been wars. Yes, there have been events that cost more lives, pandemics with higher death rates. But because of the uniqueness of our 21st century global connectivity, there has never been something like this, where literally the entirety of the planet is facing one big collective nightmare. And here we are trying to do Easter Sunday. It doesn't feel right. And yet, perhaps, there has never been a more fitting Easter Sunday. You see, Easter is a protest. A protest against the way things are with the news of the way things ought to be. A glorious first century circumstance that defies any and all present circumstances. Any painful circumstances, not just this circumstance that we find ourselves in. Because truth be told, you don't need a pandemic to teach you the brutality of life in this world. 
A pandemic forces us all to face it in the same way at the same time. But every single person listening to this knows the cruelty of life in this world in your own unique way. You have been mistreated. You have been harmed. You have been offended. You have had your hopes crushed. You have had your dreams go unrealized. Your life has been a struggle. Loneliness, brokenheartedness, sadness, disappointment, regrets, anxiety, depression, abuse, shame, guilt, and of course, this thing called death. And even when things do go well, and it does go well often, but even still, when things do go well, there is that reliable, malignant whisper inside us all that defiles the happiness with this fatalistic thought. You know this can't last. You know this can't last. And so in this way, life in this world has made cynics of us all. It has forged in us a deep, hardened pessimism. And our response, the only way we know to cope with this existence is by lowering our expectations of this existence. We give up is what we do. We give up on the way we wish things were and lower our expectations to try to make the best of the way we know things are. Well, Easter is here in defiance of our low expectations. Easter is here to invite every single one of us, despite what we have been taught to expect and certainly despite what we are experiencing in this hour of crisis, still, even now, to let our dreams of hope and joy run wild. Let's turn to our passage from Luke 24, and we will see in the experience of the disciples two things that apply to us in this hour what we are taught to expect, and what we ought to expect. First, let's start with what this world has taught us to expect. Let me briefly set the stage for us. Jesus Christ has been crucified and buried. His disciples feel uh, defeated, deflated, even betrayed by him because they had given their life to Jesus. They had trusted him and his claims, and they are crushed to discover it was all a lie. But then crazy rumors begin to circulate. Some are claiming that they have encountered Jesus risen from the dead. This is all being reported to the disciples. And you can just imagine that as, as much as they want to believe it's true, there is just no way they are going to let themselves go there. Not just because how incredibly unlikely the claim is, and we must admit it is an incredible claim, but because they don't want to get their hopes up, only to be crushed again. That's where our passage picks up. The disciples are in a room together trying to figure out what to do with all of these rumors. In verse 36, And they were talking about these things, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. Now at this point, they can see Jesus, they can hear Jesus, but they still will not believe it's Jesus. Verse 37, But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. 
And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. So now they have seen him, now they have heard him, now they have touched him, but now look at this fascinating wording in verse 41. And while they still disbelieved for joy. Now that is a strange verse. Disbelieved for joy. In other words, in the name of joy, they won't let themselves believe this. Jesus is standing right there in front of them. They see him, they hear him, they touch him. All the evidential demands have been met, but there's one last obstacle, perhaps the biggest obstacle of all, the fear of too good to be true. The fear of joy. But why? Why do they disbelieve to protect joy? Why do we do this? Why does skepticism always arise in the presence of good news for us? Well, I'm willing to play the realist this morning. If we can't admit it this Easter, when can we ever admit it? I think our cynicism is justified. Sure, it's fun to play Easter once a year, to gather together and pray our prayers and sing our songs of joy and hear an inspiring message and to fantasize about hope once a year. But we all know what's in store on the other side of the benediction. More pain, more loss, more distress, more heartache, more joylessness. And this year, more than any year, is proving the vanity of joy. Because things are so bad that we can't even get together and pretend to be happy. So forgive me if I'm not willing to embrace what seems to be nothing more than vaunted idealism. I want you to know the Bible would never try to disagree with that assessment of things. The Bible is not a book with its heads in the clouds. It is brutally honest about the grief of our existence. Now, it also tells us that it wasn't always this way. When God designed life, life was perfect. This world was perfect. Originally, there was no such thing as too good to be true because goodness was the only thing that was true. There was no such thing as high expectations because expectations could not be high enough. But we, meaning humanity, we messed it all up. You have heard the word sin before. But perhaps you've only thought of it in terms of morality. To sin is to do a bad thing. And certainly sin is more immorality. But sin's much more. Sin is a vandalism of God's design, which brought ruin to God's creation. It is the fatal flaw in the system such that now the system is broken. I mentioned our office copier is possessed by a demon. I'm still convinced that's probably true, but a few weeks ago there was a more rational explanation for its normal to be expected dysfunction. I was trying to print something. Nothing was printed. Nothing was printing, so we, we, we called the mechanics again. They came out to fix it again, and this time they discovered a, a tiny little piece hidden within, that had a tiny little crack. And because of that little crack, the whole printer was malfunctioning. 
Well, that is how you can think of creation. Creation is this vast created order designed by a creator and sin is like this little internal broken part of creation that has thrown the whole thing off and it isn't functioning properly that isn't to say it isn't functioning it is i'm not saying this world is only miserable all the time not at all Life can be good. It can be really good. What I'm saying is that the goodness is now always defiled. So, yes, we experience the goodness of love, but love is defiled by hatred. Yes, we experience the goodness of friendship, but friendship is defiled by betrayal. Yes, laughter, but laughter defiled by pain. Yes, romance, but romance defiled by heartache. Yes, health, but health defiled by disease. And on an ultimate level, yes, the goodness of life. And yet every single life is defiled by death. And so, how do we cope with the defilement of goodness? How does fallen humanity cope with fallen creation? We lower our expectations. We give up is what we do. We give up on the dream of Eden that we might survive life post-Eden. Which is exactly what the disciples are doing in verse 41. They are disbelieving for joy. They protect what little joy they have left by not exposing that joy to the plausibility of good news. So what will Jesus do? In the face of their disbelief. What does Jesus do with our low expectations? He shatters them. We have seen what we are taught to expect. Let's now look at what we ought to expect. Again, verse 41. While they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? I love that. He combats their doubts in the most patient and inviting way. Anything to eat? There's a double meaning there, to be sure. In one sense, he does want to demonstrate the physical reality of his resurrection. That is to say, can a ghost eat a piece of fish? There are many ways he can demonstrate that. He's trying to prove a point, is what he's doing. He's choosing the most hospitable way to prove himself he did the exact same thing when reunited with Peter after his resurrection. First thing he wants to do with Peter is eat some fish. All this eating after the resurrection, apparently being dead, makes one hungry. Or he's trying to make a statement, and I think it's the latter. A meal is universally understood as the most welcoming and joyful thing that we humans do. Try to think of something celebratory from your story that does not involve a table, food, and the people you cherish. In every culture, a meal together is this sacred space of joy. Now, Jesus did life in a fishing culture. Broiled fish would be on the menu just about every meal. It was almost their exclusive protein. So think about how many times Jesus and his disciples sat together eating broiled fish. Think of the memories that Jesus had with them. Memories of laughter, 
of thoughtful conversation, of deep intimacy all around a meal of fish. And now standing before them in his resurrection, Jesus calms their fears and combats their doubts with a common act they've seen him do a hundred times. Let's eat some fish. It's me, that is to say. It's me, guys. It's really me. You can let your hearts go. And that is exactly what happens. The disciples raise their expectations of hope and invite joy to run wild on their hearts. I didn't read this, but at the end of Luke 24, which is the end of Luke's gospel, it ends this way in verse 50. He led them out as far as Bethany and lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Now, this is what we call the ascension, where the resurrected Jesus is exalted to heaven until he returns again. Now, we just take that event for granted, but could you imagine how disappointing that must have been? Jesus returns from the dead, full of promise and joy, the power of the resurrection breaking through this death-filled world. The disciples let themselves go, believing in hope, believing in promise, and then he's gone. How would you imagine the disciples respond to his departure? Well, I knew it. You know, too good to be true. Just, just when uh, I got my hopes up, raised my expectation, once again, it all comes crashing down, story of my life. That's what you would expect. But let me read what happens next. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. A week earlier, they were riding into Jerusalem with high expectations and a lot of joy. It was the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. Their Messiah, the king, into Jerusalem. They fought to establish the kingdom and literally fix the world. That's what they were expecting a week ago. And yet in one week, their dreams have come crashing down. Their Messiah crucified and buried. Jerusalem has become the city of shattered expectations. But upon encountering the resurrected Jesus, it says they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Just like last week when they entered Jerusalem with great joy, only this time it's different. This time it's unshakable. This time their joy is not fragile because it is born out of the resurrection which made their joy unstoppable. Listen, the disciples' lives got much harder, not easier. And they would all but one die a martyr's death. And yet, their lives continually testified to something counterintuitive, joy. Joy is all over the New Testament writings. The most peculiar attribute of the early persecuted church was their joy when it seemed that they had no reason to be joyful. But the point is they did they knew Jesus was risen, which means they knew that hope had finally broken through and overwhelmed hopelessness. They knew that his resurrection was only a preview of their future resurrection, indeed the resurrection of the entire creation. They knew Easter was just the beginning and that eventually every day, every story, eventually every story one day would likewise be surprised by the same resurrection hope. 
They knew that despite what every miserable circumstance was telling them, the resurrection was a truer circumstance and would one day undo every circumstance. They knew resurrection was the final word of Christ's story and that Christ has promised it to be the final word of every story, including yours. Here is my invitation to you this Easter Sunday of the 2020 pandemic. I want to invite you this morning to vulnerably expose yourself to high expectations. Yes, even amid a pandemic. I want to ask you to stop guarding what little joy you have in this world through low expectations and sneering skepticism and instead raise your expectations and let hope and let joy run wild and free. You know what I want you to do? I want you to dream. The good kind of dreams, not the dreams that, like I started my sermon with, these anxious dreams that we all know, not just in our sleep, but during our waking hours. They, these dreams are easy to imagine. We do it all day long. Vain imaginations about anxious outcomes that we obsess over. How about, for one time, we obsess over imaginations of joy? For the resurrection tells us that these imaginations are not the vain imaginations. They are the certain imaginations. So dream. Dream of how good it could be. Knowing that no matter how good your dream may be, you cannot outdream the resurrection. You see, I'm not asking you to think happy thoughts as some coping mechanism, because that doesn't work. Happy thoughts get crushed too. No, no, no. I'm asking you to believe that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. I mean that it actually happened. And it happened as a preview and guarantee of the destiny of every single one who trusts in Him. Now, if by chance you're listening and you have not chosen to trust in Him, if you're, if you're not a follower of the risen Jesus, then my advice to you this day is a little different. Now, forgive me if it sounds um, fatalistic, but I think I owe it to you to be as honest and shoot you straight. Here would be my advice. Keep going with your coping methods. Keep your expectations very low. Enjoy as much as you can. Turn to your chosen vice to numb out the pain because, yes, your cynicism is telling the truth. This is as good as it gets. But, friends, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. You could, this Easter, bury your low expectations and discover the resurrection of eternal expectations. Give yourself to the risen Jesus, and raise your expectations of hope and joy. But for those who trust and follow Jesus, I am telling you this morning, I'm not asking you, I'm telling you, in the name of Jesus who is risen from the dead, let your hearts go. Indulge on hope, feast on joy, dream your dreams, yes, even now. 
courageously look at the circumstances of even a pandemic, all the fear, all the uncertainty, the financial ruin, the isolation, the restlessness, and yes, even your own potential death or the death of someone you love. Look at all of it. And instead of lowering your expectations to cope with it, declare to it, resurrection is coming for you. Jesus is risen and he is coming for all of it, to undo all of it and make all of it new. Soon and very soon, all of heaven and earth will hear this decree. The former things have passed away. Behold, I make all things new. Behold, I resurrect all things. That's not what life in this world has taught us to believe. But it's exactly what Easter demands we ought to believe. Let me pray. Oh Lord, fill our homes and our hearts with resurrection promise. May we know with certainty, I'm praying specifically for those suffering, may they know with certainty that your resurrection is truer than whatever they're facing. And that in you, in your hope, all of this will come untrue and will give way to the resurrected story that you began. Give us that assurance. Raise our hope. Raise our dreams. Raise our expectations this Easter. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.